Welcome to the seventh generation on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire with Michelle Golder, Sheena Mooney and myself Nick Skelton. Now the start of the new year is a good time to think about new ideas including ways we can build back better from the results of this ongoing pandemic and hopefully avoid climate breakdown. So in this show we look at two big 21st century ideas Kate Rayworth's new way of looking at economics, inspired by the shape of a donut, and deliberative democracy, especially as carried out in the 2020 Climate Assembly. First up, Michelle interviews two members of Cambridge's own brand new Donut Economics Action Group, or CAMDIAG, as they call themselves. Here she is with Geraint Davis and Diner Ismail. Over to you, Michelle. What does a donut have to do with the economy? Well, it's all about the shape, as Oxford economist and author Kate Rayworth explains in this clip. So a few years ago, I I tried to draw a picture of the world that we want to live in. And it, silly though it sounds, it came out looking like a donut, American one with a hole in the middle. So imagine a donut, there's the outside and then there's the inside and there's that hole in the middle. In the hole in the middle, that's a space of deprivation, a space of shortfall where people don't have the resources to meet the essentials of life, like they don't have enough food or education, they don't have access to electricity, enough income, they don't have decent housing. So it's a space of shortfall and we want to get people out of that hole in the middle into the donut. But we want to do that for the whole world, making sure that we also don't go beyond the donut's outer crust because that's a space of ecological overshoot where humanity puts more pressure on the planet than the planet can take, and we start causing climate change or massive loss of biodiversity. That was the voice of Kate Rayworth, Oxford economist and the author of the book and the concept of donut economics. That's D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T for donut, in case you want to look that up later. Kate Rayworth has been spreading the word about her donut economics concept across the world in TED Talks and even here at the Cambridge Literary Festival two years ago. The concept is one of the big ideas that is really sweeping the globe, both at a grassroots, a local government, and even a national level. And here in Cambridge, we now have our own Cambridge Donut Economic Action Group. And joining us today are two of its members to tell us about the donut, what it means for our city, and how it might change our economy in the future. So joining us, we have Geraint Davis, the co-founder of Innovia Technology and a innovation technologist himself. Welcome, Geraint. Hi there. And Diner Ismail, a web developer originally from Romania, who's lived in Cambridge for eight years. Happy to be here. Geraint, I'd like to start with you, if I could. Why do we need a new form of economics? Okay, well, let's start first with the economy. And we've heard a lot about the economy recently and how we're trying to balance percentage growth of the economy with the need to keep people healthy against COVID. But economics isn't just about money. It's about what we value, how we get it, and what effects that has. Imagine if you ask somebody, how's your son doing? And they said, well, he grew 3% last year, and next year we're hoping he'll grow 3.5%. I think we'd all agree that would be a pretty feeble way of describing his progress. What you'd want to know is how happy has he been? How is his education going? How are his friendships and relationships? And has he broken the door again or annoyed the neighbors with a loud party? In the same way, We need better measures for the country for what we value from the society around us and what damage we do to the place we live, more than just a percentage growth in the number of pounds we all spend or make. So donut economics is a better way to look at the economy. It's the economics of sustainability, environmental sustainability, social sustainability, and yes, financial sustainability too. Society is focused too much on the last one, financial sustainability, and not enough on the others, the environmental and social ones. And as a result of that, we now have two crises, in fact, three. We've got a crisis of climate change, a crisis of social cohesion, as well as the credit crisis that we often talk about. In a sense, our economy has borrowed too much from the future, and now we're deeply in debt. The question is, How can we go about fixing that with a different kind of economy? And that's what donut economics is all about. 
So, Dinea, I'm going to turn to you. So, Garage has explained a problem that we have with our current economic system. How is the donut different? Sure. So, uh, donut economics is a counter proposal to mainstream economic thinking. So, what it does is it sets a clear goal to meet the needs of all people within the means of our living planet. And to measure our progress towards that goal, it's not enough to just have a number like we currently use GDP. Uh, we need to have a rich visual dashboard of indicators. And it seems like the best way to visualize them is in uh, the shape of a donut. It's difficult to explain on, on the radio, but I think, think about the shape of a donut with an inner circle, which is the social foundation, and the outer circle, which is the ecological ceiling. That hole in the middle is where people fall short on life's essentials. They don't have the food, housing, healthcare, education, political voice that every person needs for a life of dignity and opportunity. We want to get everyone out of the hole and onto the donut itself. But at the same time, we need to pay attention to our collective resource use and not overshoot the outer circle, which is the ecological ceiling. We already put so much pressure on this planet. We're causing climate breakdown, biodiversity loss, pushing ourselves beyond the boundaries of what our planet can bear. We are far from balance at the moment, falling short and overshooting at the same time. There is theoretically an ideal sustainable living space between the two circles where we should be headed for. And that is a sweet spot, the donut itself. It helps to draw them on the same diagram to remember that we need to pay attention to all of them. And I highly recommend you to look it up. It's such a powerful picture. Yeah, I've seen Kate Rayworth's talk and it is an incredibly compelling idea. So I understand the concept that we need to stay within the boundaries of the donut. And we're talking an American style donut, of course, with a hole in the middle. And we need to stay out of that hole, which is the place where humans don't have their basic needs met, but not go past the outer edges where the planet can't support us. I understand that. But how does that work in practice? How do we get Cambridge working like a donut? Geraint, would you like to tackle that one? Sure. First thing to recognize is why Cambridge needs to be different. And we all know that Cambridge is a, is a success story for science and business. But what we might not recognize is that it's actually in some ways a social and ecological failure. Cambridge is one of the UK's most unequal cities, perhaps the most unequal. And if you want to know what equality, if you want to visualize equality, think about a pay scale. If you put all of the people in Cambridge and their pay along a scale from one to 10, where five is, say, the UK average, and, you, and then you look, where do, where do people lie on that scale? If they were in one blob, then that would be equal. That would be equality. If they're in two or three big blobs that are distant from each other and in different places on that scale, then that's inequality. And Cambridge has that. It has those two blobs, effectively, the rich and the poor. Now, if you look at what's happening in the US, it's tearing itself apart as a society, mainly because of that social inequality. And you, the USA is the most unequal of all the developed countries. So there's another thing as well about Cambridge, which is that the growth explosion is choking the city because of intense competition for natural resources like land and water. So actually, Cambridge is a perfect place to apply donut thinking. Yes, I like the way you've put that, because I think more and more people are feeling the direct effects of development and growth new transport schemes, new housing developments on meadows, near villages, and not feeling very happy about it. Our, our sort of lovely Cambridge bubble is feeling increasingly precarious. But how does the donut address that? So the first thing to know is it's really tricky. Uh, just as you've explained, there are all of these pressures on Cambridge. There's no simple answer, although Dinar, I think, can uh, give us some examples in a minute of, of how we might do that. And it's going to take a lot of ingenuity, a lot of clear thinking, a lot of really good teamwork. And that's the sort of things that Cambridge is well known for. Let me say why it's tricky in a little more detail first. The first one is that all of the social needs that we need to be improved use up planetary resources. So the stuff moving up on the inside makes you move out on the outside if you're not careful. So that's things like energy for production, materials for houses and for land and food. So we need to be really smart about the ways we improve on those social needs while at the same time reducing the stress on the planet. So that's one of the things that makes it difficult. The second is the social needs are all woven into a really complicated fabric. And if you pull on one part of it, 
it affects other parts, maybe in the wrong way. As an example, driving housing growth in Cambridge and, and economic growth may just be draining innovative talent and investment away from other parts of the UK or other countries, leading to even more inequality, but now between us and them. So by fixing inequality in one place, you might make it worse in another. So Daenerys, does the donut help us look at our country and the planet in a more holistic way? This tool can be applied at different levels, the planet, country, city, a business, or even a household. And we can use different lenses for that. The social and ecological, which can be viewed from uh, either a local perspective or a global one. So let's think about Cambridge. Every city is deeply connected to people and places worldwide. Therefore, any local aspiration that we have has to be set in the the context of a global responsibility. So we can ask questions like, how can Cambridge respect the health of the whole planet? So think of uh, food, clothing, anything important to our city and the impact that has on the environment. Or what would it take for Cambridge to respect the well-being of people worldwide? So we think again of goods important into the city, but we consider whose labor went into producing them or transporting them and if they were treated well and paid fairly. And all of these can bring a new perspective on what it would mean for Cambridge to be a thriving city. Is the goal of Donut, this is what I'm confused about, is the goal of Donut Economics then to change our behavior as individuals or is it a systems change or is it both? Uh, Yes, it's definitely a systemic change, but it will require a lot of participation and a lot of bottom-up action. Our overall mission is to understand the problems of social and ecological sustainability that apply most to Cambridge, and then to build a coalition of other players in the city to help address those problems. So along the way, we especially want to include the community of people who suffer most from inequality. Another thing we'd like to do is to influence the local plan. For those of your listeners that don't know what that is, that is the big picture plan for the next 20 years, which the government is is asking Cambridge to achieve, which is to build tens of thousands of homes in the area. And what we want to do is to show national government that there's a better way for Cambridge and for other cities than just piling on more growth to a city that's already choking itself. I guess you'd say that we're hoping that we can just be a catalyst for change and the real engine for change, Michelle, is your audience and the people around them. Looking at that example of how can we thrive as a city while we respect the planetary boundaries, how in practice would that happen as a city? Dinair, can I go back to you on that? So we've already described how we need to change the goal we're heading for from a simple one-dimensional one to a more balanced set of targets. But next, we need to recognize and take account of the economic value generated in unpaid but but valuable activities, like in parenting, running homes, and community and leisure activities that are rewarding for us. These are currently treated as distractions and trivialities that get in the way. But the unpaid caring work of parents raising kids, who will be the next generation of workers, is almost completely ignored by mainstream economics. And... By ignoring that, we're ignoring the work of millions of the world's women who keep their families alive every day. Then, we need to focus on collaboration and community building, not competing and keeping secrets from each other. Like, look at a debate uh, about patents for COVID vaccines, for example. We need to develop relationships of trust between people across many activities. And this will help build social cohesion rather than deep and polarized groups that hate each other. We have seen during COVID how communities have rallied together to help each other and how mutual aid organizations have helped so many people with food, advice, everyday tasks. And let's, let's strengthen those networks. We need to make sure that our business models distribute value, not hoover it up for the few at the top. Employee ownership of businesses can do this, for example, like John Lewis, and even better if they are owned by communities, including the customers of the business, like the co-op. In addition, our industries should design new products and processes that are regenerative, that use old products as the input for new products. We can learn a lot from how nature does things, biomimicry. All of these things take creativity and innovation, and this is not returning to old technology. It's new technology and moving forward to new ways of doing things. Great. So the resistance to this idea that I've encountered is the idea that through growth, through endless growth, 
we have brought people up out of poverty. And to some extent, you can see why that is believed. You know, overall, there has been a lifting of living standards pretty much, I think, throughout the world. So how does the donut help us to get past this idea that we have to have the growth to have everyone at the same level? I think that idea is true for developing countries, but there are many authors who basically say that that idea has run its course for the developed countries and is no longer true. So what people talk about is trickle down. There's there's a myth of trickle down, which says if you pour money in at the top, it will trickle down to the people at the bottom, from the rich to the poor. In fact, it gushes up the other way because of the way we've designed the economic system. If you have money, you can make more money. But if you don't, you can't. And that's basically the poverty trap, as some people call it. So donut economics tells us that we need to reverse this extraction of resources from the planet and from one set of people to another and move to some of the more distributive models that Dinaire was talking about. How is it different then? I'm going to play devil's advocate. (laughs) How is it different from old-fashioned communism? Well, that's a very good question. I would say that the system we're talking about is somewhere that's nearer between the middle of the current economic system we have and communism. One of the things about communism is that it's very state-driven down from the top. And that's extremely inefficient. And and we've basically seen that it doesn't work and it can be quite nasty for people at the bottom. Donut economics is about having many more stakeholders, about having the government as stakeholders, the community as stakeholders, business and households, as we were talking about. And the commons is how donut economics describes the wealth of communities. So having all of those people as stakeholders to balance the engine and grow in a way that's prosperous for everybody. And, and Danaire, I, I think I'm right that one of the reasons Kate Rayworth thinks that now is the time for this idea is that some of the new technologies we have, like 3D printing and our distributed uh, energy network, which is the future of the world where everyone can generate their own energy, that kind of turns everything on its head. That's right. It's, um, it, it allows, for example, uh, renewable energy that's more local. It allows communities to hold more of that power. And the internet, for example, is very distributive. There's, well, we have Wikipedia, which is completely free. Yes, and I would add that a lot of the things that we've come across, even in the COVID crisis, have given us pointers to new solutions that have been created either through new technology or through new ways of interacting with each other. And I think what Kate Rayworth really points out is that the need for a solution is becoming more and more obvious to everybody and that there are already tools to create a solution, but they're just not complete yet. But we need to start focusing on those tools and understanding how we can really optimize them for the way we do things. A good example is the difference between Amazon and eBay. Amazon filters up all the money to one company, which is Amazon, whereas eBay allows people to distribute the value between each other. So you can use the same sort of technology in two completely different ways to either suck value up to one group of people or to allow it to spread between everybody that participates. That's an excellent example. I recently came across a company that is collecting used fishing nets and turning them into sunglass frames. Mm -hmm. And their company goal is to go out of business because there are no more of these fishing nets. And to me, that is 21st century economics. That, That just summed it up. That's a great example that you've just given. And imagine also the difference between that company being owned by a set of shareholders who might be upset that the company is going out of business or having it owned by the people who have the problem with the fishing nets. They would be much happier to see that that company go out of business because then their real deep problem would be solved. So making sure that ownership is in the right hands and belongs to the people who own the problem is really important as well, as well as wow. technology. That's such a great idea. I was thinking about this in relation to the American prison system because it's a privatized system. So they have every reason to hope that crime goes up as <laughs> they make more money. What if the families of prisoners owned prisons? This really gets your imagination going. This is what I love about it. So let's turn to 
the Cambridge group. So tell me about who, who you guys are and how you came together. So at the moment, there's about 50 of us, but it started with a very small group of people from the University of the Third Age in Cambridge who heard about donor economics and decided to start doing it in Cambridge, which was fantastic. What also happened around the same time is that the city council and the council officers had been growing an interest in donor economics as an alternative model that could help them combat inequality. And in particular, Katie Thornborough and a couple of other councillors approached us. And through that will of these different people, we started the, the Donut Economics Action Group. And Katie Thornborough is one of our most active members. So, Danielle, what do you hope will happen going forward as a result of the work you're doing? What are the sort of steps that you'll follow? So, we're planning to organize a few hackathons, for example, to, to gather a lot of data. To What we need is to get that donut, basically, the for Cambridge, the, the Cambridge version of the donut, and see where we stand first. There'll be community workshops in every ward, and we want to hear from people uh, everywhere. What I'm really excited about, especially, is the digital donut. And that is actually going to allow people to participate, to express their views online directly, and it will be really nice, engaging way. At the moment, for example, the young don't really get involved in local politics. It doesn't seem very exciting, but we're hoping that something like that will encourage participation in, in younger people. So at the workshops, you're using those lenses that you started talking about. You talked about the first one, which was the social and environmental lens. Are you using those to sort of get people thinking about what, what the city could be like? That's right. So we'll, we'll try to answer those four questions from a local social, local ecological point of view, and then from a global social and global ecological point of view as well. So if people are interested in being part of change, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, just Google uh, Cambridge Donut uh, or Ecosia, you can use Ecosia as well uh, to, <laughs> to find us. And uh, we, we need help from all kinds of people there, there are so many ways to help. For example, I worked on the website. You can help with the website. There's social media. If you want to organize events, if you want to plan and run the workshops or reach into communities, interview people on the streets or communicate these topics to the wider audience, you're very welcome. I would love to have you. The Seventh Generation on Cambridge 105 Radio. Well, thanks so much to Garant Davis and Dinair Ismail of the Cambridge Donut Action Group. That's D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T if you're going to look them up. That was a really interesting introduction to the concepts of Kate Raworth's donut economics, I must say. As always, we will include links to the group in our show description on the Cambridge 105 radio website and also our Facebook page. The website is www.cambridge105.co.uk and look for the seventh generation. Now we're packing a lot in today, so now we're going to go straight to part one of a piece which combines Michelle's interview with Sarah Allen, who was actually one of the organisers of the UK Climate Assembly, together with Sheena's interview with Liz Roman, a South Cambridgeshire resident who was actually a member of that assembly last year. People's Assembly, Citizens' Assembly, Deliberative Democracy. You may have heard some or all of these terms recently in the news. The Government of Ireland used a Citizens' Assembly to reach a consensus on how to address the question of abortion law, for example. Extinction Rebellion uses People's Assemblies in its decision-making and educational processes, and its third demand is for a Citizens' Assembly. Getting the views of a representative slice of the population on difficult and contentious subjects is increasingly seen as essential to reach important decisions that can then be acted upon politically. So today we are looking at the UK Climate Assembly, which launched just before the pandemic started in January 2020 and delivered its report on the 10th of September. Joining us to talk about the UK Climate Assembly is Sarah Allen, Head of Engagement for Involve, one of the organizations commissioned to organize and run the Climate Assembly. Welcome to the seventh generation, Sarah, and welcome back to Cambridge in theory, although we're actually doing this on Zoom, but you are a former resident of Cambridge, aren't you? 
Yes, I am. I lived and worked in Cambridge for about two years and a very happy two years they were as well. Let's start, Sarah, if you could tell us about your involvement with Involve and then with the Climate Assembly. Yes, of course. So Involve's a charity that helps people to have a greater say over the decisions that affect their lives. And we got involved with Climate Assembly UK when Parliament issued a tender asking people to bid to run the Climate Assembly. And we were one of the organisations that responded to the tender with a couple of partners and we won. And what was your job within that? And my job was to lead Involve's work on it. So I led the delivery of the assembly. So you were there every day at the assemblies? I was there every day at the assembly and uh, a lot of work beforehand and in between and afterwards as well. Do you know how and why the government decided to hold a climate assembly? So the first thing that I think that's important to say is it isn't the government that held Climate Assembly UK, it's Parliament. So it's an important distinction. Parliament is the body that's responsible for scrutinising what the government does and holding it to account. So Parliament has a number of what are called select committees, cross-party groups of MPs, and some of those shadow different departments. So you have a select committee that shadows the Treasury, for example, a select committee that shadows the Home Office. And a number of those committees, which shadow departments whose work is affected by climate change, plus a couple of other committees who look at for example science and technology decided to commission the assembly because they were going to have to work on climate change on this new target of net zero emissions by 2050 and they wanted to understand what the public thought to help inform their work and holding government to account. Do you know if they had any precedent in looking to a climate assembly or a citizens assembly to look at those issues? Were they looking at the Irish success? So I don't know definitively. I know that a couple of years ago, we ran a citizens' assembly for two of these committees looking at how social care in England should be funded long term. And we know that that went down really well with the committees, that they found it really valuable and they used it a lot to inform their work. And after that, there was quite a bit of work done inside Parliament to kind of make sure the other committees were aware of what a citizens' assembly was and how and when it might be useful to them. So I suspect that was part of the reason. But other processes like the Irish citizens' assembly, which have been in the news a lot, you know, around its work on abortion and gay marriage, have been really influential in general. So I wouldn't be surprised if there were kind of a range of factors that informed the committee's decisions. So before we go on, I think we should define our terms. I mentioned people's assemblies and citizens' assemblies. Can you tell us what the difference is between them? So, well, it depends. So people use the terms quite loosely to describe a lot of different things. So citizens' assembly are representative of the population, usually in terms of demographics, characteristics, so age, gender, ethnicity, perhaps educational level, usually geography, so where people live, and also in terms of their attitudes. So for the climate assembly that we've been talking about, how much or how little people cared about climate change, the membership of the assembly was representative of the wider UK population. So that's a citizens assembly. Usually when people talk about a people's assembly, it's the people who wanted to turn up. Yes, that's exactly my personal experience is it's been used when those of us who have shown up have been encouraged to give our opinions rather than like attending a seminar where someone tells us what they think. And then maybe we get a chance to ask a few questions. So it's a different way of holding a meeting to discuss something where we are actually given the chance to to say what we think. That's the People's Assembly. It's self-selected and therefore there would be quite a lot of biases probably in who's there and who's not when you look at it against the wider Cambridge population, for example. I agree. But once you've been to a meeting that's run in a People's Assembly type way where you are given a voice and then you attend an ordinary meeting, say, <laughs> it's quite shocking to, to suddenly feel that you're not being given a voice. Yes. So yes. I think that the idea of assemblies is actually disseminating through our culture really rapidly, and it's a really positive change. Oh, I agree. And th there's nothing wrong with using a people's assembly for certain purposes. It all depends about what method is right, like a citizen assembly or a people's assembly or something different altogether. It entirely depends on what the group is being asked to do. So if you're being asked to inform net zero policy for the whole of the UK, it's really important that the membership is representative of the diversity of the UK population. You know, it shouldn't be a self-selected group making that policy. But as a different way of running a meeting for a group of people who are coming together anyway, a people's assembly is obviously a really valuable way to do it. How does deliberative democracy fit into the assembly question? 
a deliberative democracy is then a wider concept. And there's lots of different ways to define it. I'm not sure I'm going to do it justice just right now. But essentially, it's the idea that you bring together different people, that they learn about an issue either just from each other and each other's experiences, or bringing in specialist knowledge and expertise. And then they get a chance to consider it together and discuss it. And then they get to reach some decisions. And the idea of deliberative democracy is that techniques that allow people to do that, like citizens' assemblies, but there are lots of them, should be used much more as part of our political decision-making and it would result in, in a better democracy and better decisions. I think it's even more urgent than that. We are facing, in my country of birth, the United States, a very serious threat to democracy right now. And I think one of the reasons is that people feel so disempowered. And I see that happening here as well. So it seems really important to me. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, I think personally, obviously, do think it is really important. And I think most advocates of democracy, but not all of them, see it as a complement to what we've got now. So it's it's not about scrapping parliament and, and ripping up everything we've got. It's about adding deliberative techniques to the systems that we already have and using it to make them better. Okay, so turning back to the UK Climate Assembly 2020, what was the brief that the Assembly was given to decide? So the committees were really clear about that, actually. The, the question was in the tender document. So they asked for a Citizens' Assembly to address the question of how the UK should reach its legally binding target of net zero emissions by 2050. And I don't know if that target needs a bit of unpacking. So in June 2019, the UK Parliament unanimously passed a new law, agreed with the government, which set this new target of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And what that means is that by 2050, no amount of greenhouse gases that the UK is putting into the atmosphere, it needs to be not increasing the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And to do that, first of all, we need to put less greenhouse gas into the atmosphere in the first place. And then for the emissions that we are still putting in, we need to remove the same amount so that there's zero overall increase. And that's what a net zero target means. And the new target was to get there by 2050. But when they passed this new target, they didn't say how the UK should get there. So we have this brand new target, which the government then has to work to implement. And the select committees have to scrutinise the government's work in implementing it. But no one has said anything about how it would be achieved. It sounds like a very sticky problem. Yes. <laughs> so let me just make sure I understand this right. So net zero doesn't mean that by 2050, the UK will have completely eliminated its greenhouse gas emissions. It means that we will reduce them as much as we can. But by 2050, the amount that we still produce, which hopefully will be small, will be balanced by the processes that take carbon out of the atmosphere, which might be natural processes like forests and soil, or might be some sort of technology. Exactly, but at the moment we're putting in way more than is being pulled out. And it's very difficult if we carry on putting in the amount we're putting in to pull out that huge amount that would be needed. So what you need to do is reduce the amount you're putting in and then for the little amount that you are still putting in because it's really difficult not to, then have enough trees and other mechanisms to pull that remaining amount out again so that the amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere isn't increasing overall. So net zero by 2050 wouldn't fix the amount of climate change we've already experienced. No. But it would prevent worse climate, yes. climate change. That's right. Okay, I, other people probably understand that better than me, but thank you, because that was really helpful to help me understand it. Okay, so they were given the brief to solve climate change, no, to figure out how the UK could reach net zero by 2050. Were there any constraints put on them? No, there weren't any constraints put on them as such. So the committee said that they wanted the Assembly to get to the level of considering kind of specific policies for how we might get there. And we had four weekends. And yes, that was the plan prior to COVID, four weekends with people. So you can't cover absolutely every part of how we get to net zero in that time. So we had to make a decision about where we were going to focus. But we managed to cover a huge range of areas from what we eat to how we use the land to how we travel. One of the really big areas 
And then to give people time at the end to add anything else that we hadn't looked at or that they felt they wanted to say in addition. So that's how we did it. So there were, in that sense, a little bit of constraint just in the sense that there wasn't time for people to learn about every aspect of the path to net zero. But if we didn't talk about something that they wished that we had talked about, they could bring it up in that final session at the end of the assembly and still add it to the report. So when you say we had to make a decision, were you working with Parliament in deciding the agenda or were you given freedom to decide the agenda within the time constraints that you had? So I was working with a whole range of people to work on the agenda. So I'm not a climate change specialist. I'm a citizens assembly specialist. So I needed to work with climate change specialists. So we worked with four people who we called expert leads. So four specialists in climate change. So one of them was Chris Stark, who's the chief executive of the Climate Change Committee, which are the government's independent advisors on climate change. And then we worked with three really highly regarded academics with different specialisms. So someone called Jim Watson from University College London, someone called Rebecca Willis from the University of Lancaster, and someone called Lorraine Whitmarsh from the University of Bath. And I worked closely with them to draft a programme. But then it was really rigorously checked. So yes, it was checked by officials in Parliament to make sure that they were happy with it. But it also went through an advisory panel and an academic panel, different parts of the design, to make sure that people were happy with it. So the advisory panel had loads of different stakeholders on it, from the National Farmers Union to the trade unions to business groups, like a whole range of people. And then the academic panel was, as you expect, academics with various different specialisms. And they all checked it because it was so important that the design was balanced. That sounds like an incredible amount of work and research had to go into choosing the advisory panels and the experts that that were going to speak. But climate change has become such a political, politicised question. Did you have to deal with that in choosing who the experts would be or how the topics would be covered? Yes, we had to think a lot about how we made sure the evidence that the Assembly heard was going to be balanced, accurate and comprehensive. They were the three words that we kind of thought about all the time. And the reason that we had the two different panels that were put together by Parliament to themselves be reflective of a wide range of interest in how you go about getting to net zero. The reason we had them and we had the parliamentary officials who are so used to having to provide balanced information to members of parliament all involved in it is so none of us could bring our own personal unintentional bias to something and it not be picked up by someone else and it just go through the process. So there were all these layers of checks to make sure that no one had undue influence. And that's standard practice for the Citizens Assembly because however politically contentious the topic is, it's really important that the people at the Assembly are hearing balanced information. Lovely. So now we're going to hear from someone who actually took part in the Citizens' Assembly, South Cam's resident, Liz Roman, who Sheena interviewed about what the experience of being on the Citizens' Assembly was actually like. And she starts by telling us a little bit about herself. (laughs) My background is nursing and I'm also a counsellor, or was, I'm well retired now. And I'd always been interested in environmental issues and loved the countryside, always watched what's happening in the world generally. The postman came and saw this letter from the Houses of Parliament, and I thought, what nurse is? And opened it up, and it was just this sudden invitation to be a part of the Climate Assembly, which was happening in about six weeks' time. Over that initial period, I think they contacted something like 30,000 families, totally randomly selected from the whole of Britain. And people responded and didn't want to or did, and then sort of narrowed it down so that there was a completely wide range of people from 80 to 80, which is what I am. So a complete social range, age range, every sort of range of society was represented. And they phoned me and said, was I willing? And I said, yes, very much. So that was it. Each day was a mixture of presentations by lead experts. So, you know, academic people, discussion groups, we were all assigned to different groups each day. So every time we met, It was with a different group of eight people, usually with a very good convener. There was a theme for each weekend. The general talk was on on whatever that theme was. And we heard the information. We then split up into our groups and had a big discussion on what we'd heard. Then it carried on like that from 10 in the morning till 8 at night. It was pretty tiring. 
if people wanted to do further research, there were lots of links to papers and reports, but um, I didn't really do that. I should have done, but um, <laughs> life gets in the way and being a bit older, you know, I just didn't have the energy. <laughs> but yeah. it was so interesting. I mean, I learned so much, but still, of course, you were hearing from these expert leads who, of course, their one subject was something like, um, oh, I don't know, food, farming, forests, whatever. So we were getting an incredibly sort of condensed picture of, of what that particular subject was that day. They did prepare us as much as they possibly could. I took loads and loads of notes. I think we all did. But they did follow it up with summaries. And there were hundreds of post-its used over the four weekends or the three weekends. And then, of course, COVID hit. And um, so they then had to do the fourth weekend. They didn't just cancel it. They determined to see it through. And we had three weekends on Zoom covering the same sort of thing that we would have talked about in the one weekend in Birmingham, that last weekend. The report of the Citizens Climate Assembly UK was revealed in September 2020. Could you just give me a, as brief as possible overview of the sort of high points of the report? Yes. So it's a really detailed report. It's got way over 50 recommendations. But to summarise the sorts of things that are in the report, it starts off with a set of principles that the Assembly members were very keen to see underpin the UK's path to net zero. So they talked about the importance of fairness. The way we get to net zero needs to be fair to people on different incomes, who work in different sectors, who live in different regions of the UK. They talked about the importance of freedom and choice. So this idea that wherever possible, individuals and local areas should be able to pick the solutions that best suit them. And there's a range of other principles like at the very top level. Then the report goes into looking at the key areas that are affected by the path to net zero. The path to net zero affects so much of our lives. So how we travel, how we use heat and energy in the home, what we eat, how we use the land, what we buy, where our electricity comes from. There's, there's all these areas. And the Assembly looked at all of those. And for each of them, it looked at three different things. So it looked at key considerations for each area. So, for example, on transport, there were key considerations around making sure that transport was accessible for everybody and affordable for everybody and that kind of thing. So these kind of overarching considerations. Then the Assembly looked at what and it looked at how. So if you keep going with the example of transport, there's some choices about what the future looks like. So I'll be moving to electric cars really, really quickly and continuing to travel pretty much as much as we do at the moment. Or do we want to move to electric cars more slowly, but then make sure that we travel a lot less? So these overarching questions about what so the assembly took a view on those. And then it looked at how we get there. So if we're saying that, OK, we want to move to electric cars really quickly, what sort of policies are required to get to that point. Are we banning the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by a certain date? So what, what exactly are we doing? So for each of those areas, or more, more or less all of them, they looked at these what questions and these how questions. And, and then they actually delivered their opinion on what it should be. And then they delivered their opinion on what it should be, yes. So it sounds like it'd be really good reading for people. Yeah, I hope so. Like the full report is really long because they looked at so many issues, but we did produce a summary report. It's 30 sides, but there's like loads of pictures and it's not as, I promise, it's not as long as that sounds. It's quite a quick read that summarises the main conclusions. The report came out at a really interesting time in that COVID has completely transformed the way people are living and working. There is speculation that this transformation could go on well past the uh, time that the pandemic finally subsides. And yet things are going ahead all over. HS2 is going ahead. East-West Rail in our region is going ahead. How did you address those sorts of issues during the assembly? I, I realize you were discussing at the very beginning of the pandemic, but by the time you delivered the report, we were still in the middle of the pandemic. But did you talk about things the government had already made commitments to, the third runway at Heathrow? So we did talk about COVID. In fact, we talked about COVID really explicitly. So the assembly was meant to meet for four weekends. We met for three of them. And then kind of lockdown happened, travel bans happened, and the fourth weekend couldn't happen. And so we moved the assembly online, which was a completely new experience for, for me and for Involve. And... When we moved that final weekend online, we thought, well, no one wants to spend like two full days and a Friday evening on Zoom 
all at once. Like that's not enjoyable for anybody. So we split up that final weekend over three more weekends. So it was less time per weekend online. And the result was that the assembly finished meeting in about the middle of May when it was originally meant to finish at about the end of March. But what that also meant was we had time to kind of think about what we were discussing. And we made some extra time on that final weekend in mid-May. So at this point, the whole country was in really strict lockdown for the assembly to look at COVID-19. So assembly members had asked to look at COVID-19 for the precisely the reasons that you just said, that you know people were talking about oh, the changes that it was making to people's lifestyles and would they stay the same. And also parliament had asked if the assembly could look at it because here they had like a group of people who'd learned a lot about climate change and different ways of getting to net zero and parliament was grappling and the government was grappling about what we do with COVID. And what assembly members concluded was that they felt how we build back better, if you like, how we build back from COVID should help us on the path to the net zero. So it should be fully compatible with it. So we shouldn't be funding projects that take us in the opposite direction in terms of climate change. We should be investing in kind of green industries. And if we're investing in industries that have typically been very polluting, that there should be strings attached Well, let's hope that the government listens to that. And that's my next question, really. What do you see as the impacts of the report so far, either political or otherwise? So it's been really good, actually, the impact of the the report so far. We've been really pleased. So there's been a whole range of things. So first of all, the committees who originally commissioned this, the parliamentary committee that we talked about at the start. So one of them, sort of lead committee, has launched an overarching inquiry into the Assembly's results where they're going to look at what the government's done with the Assembly's work about every six months up until about this time next year and really hold the government to account for what it is and isn't doing with it and why. So that's an excellent step in kind of persuading the government that it needs to do something. The committee also arranged a debate about the report in the House of Commons and as part of that the House agreed a motion, so a formal statement, welcoming the report and asking the government to take notice of it. Then we get to the government itself, who said that the Assembly's report is going to be an important part of the evidence it considers in putting together the UK's net zero strategy. And also the Climate Change Committee, the government's independent advisory body, has just published a big new report about how it thinks the government should get to net zero. And they've used the Assembly's results extensively in their report. It talks about it throughout. There's tables comparing what they're saying to what the Assembly said. And they talk about how they constructed their scenarios, they call them, to align with what the Assembly said. So where they're saying how much diets need to change, how much we fly need to change, they've balanced it so that it is in line with what the Assembly recommended, which is great. It is great. And I think it's very important that that's communicated to everyone. I think the Citizens' Assembly is a great first step in making sure that everybody's voice is heard. But for all the people who didn't get the chance to take part, the way that they can be involved is to know that those voices are being listened to. I completely agree. And one of the, actually, the other nice things about the Climate Change Committee, the CCC for short. So the other great thing about the CCC's report is that it recommends ongoing public engagement. So it says there should now be a public engagement strategy around how we get to net zero. So local areas will have to make decisions about what they're doing. There's more detailed work beyond what the Climate Assembly covered that national government will need to do. And it says there needs to be a proper strategy for that so that people are properly involved in making these decisions that affect their lives. This is all very encouraging. I think so, yes. However, not everyone has been as pleased with the Climate Assembly Extinction Rebellion did publish a blog post which criticised the Climate Assembly for being given the brief of reaching net zero by 2050. They feel that that is not soon enough. Do you have any comment on that? Well, I'm not a climate change specialist and it involves not a climate change organisation, so we don't have a position on what the target should be. But I guess if you're looking at it from the committee's perspective, Parliament had just unanimously, so with cross-party support, created this new target, but nothing had been done about how to get there. And so that they were looking for the public views on how to meet the target. So you can see where it's come from, but we don't have a view on whether that's the right question or not. Well, encouragingly, they have since the release of the report and possibly influenced by it, made a stronger target. I think the target is to reduce uh, emissions by 65% this decade now, which is a much more specific target. So Things do seem to be moving in the right direction, at any rate. And now we're going to hear the second part of Sheena Mooney's interview with Liz Roman, 
the South Cam's resident, who was a member of the Climate Assembly, on how she feels about the impacts of the Assembly, both on herself and on the country as a whole. Do you think citizens' assemblies are a good way of informing people and gathering views and synthesising them? Do you think it was a productive process? Yes. I mean, right at the beginning, lots of people said, yes, but whatever we say, the government won't listen or they won't act. So all our final, we, obviously all the decisions and the discussions were collated at the end of each weekend. And every time there was always a paragraph saying that the government has got to hear. We've spent all this time and the cost, I think, of the assembly was huge. So we all thought if they've asked for it, then they've got to take notice of what we're saying. And they seem to have done because already there seem to be results occurring. They are already taking notice. And what did you think about the report that came out? It covered all our points. I mean, it had to because that was the agenda and included lots of our comments verbatim that the uh, conveners had written down and then obviously collated the group and um, had made a very good report at the end. It's made me much more aware of political, actually, political issues. So I read more of, you know, sort of small bits in the press and I'm keeping them because I think it's a good way of monitoring what we said about what is actually happening. So already looking in Cambridge, you know, the cycle lanes and Hills Road and this idea of tiny forests and that sort of thing, you know. Even Wimpole, the National Trust is already planting more trees. As we learnt more over the weekends, we realised how much technology, I mean, for example, at the assembly, they were talking about use of hydrogen and we almost, we dismissed it. It was came quite low down because of the work involved, the expense. It seemed in January too much of a big step of something totally new, but already 10 months later, they're quite happily talking about hydrogen and cars. And so things move very, very quickly. You just don't know what's around the corner. And, you know, technology and knowledge and you know, all these various research things can sometimes become reality much more quickly than, than you could imagine at the beginning of this work. Sarah, Liz obviously feels quite optimistic. Do you personally feel encouraged by the Assembly and by what's come out of it? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's, I mean, I find always find Citizens Assembly is such a life-affirming experience, really. You, you hear so much negative, I guess, in the press about polarisation and, and kind of negative views of people, I guess. And then when you see that diversity of people in a room together, having this really considered, really respectful conversation about these topics and coming up with shared conclusions about them and where they kind of continue to disagree agreeing to disagree but it all being sort of very amicable it just really restores your faith in in human nature and what people are capable of and it is is a really important thing in allowing people to, to have that say over the decisions that affect their lives well that's all for our show for today many thanks indeed to sarah allen of involve and south cambridgeshire resident and climate assembly member liz roman the seventh generation will be back on February the 3rd for yet another show exploring what's going on on the environmental front in Cambridge and South Cambridgeshire. Until then, you can listen again on our Mixcloud channel, which you'll be able to find on our page on the Cambridge 105 Radio website. Look for the seventh generation, that's 7th generation, where you'll find links to our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Thanks very much for listening. And let's hope that some of these good...